If you have a Bible, why don't you turn to uh, Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Um, we are a, a week out from Christmas, and so it was only appropriate that we just really kind of consider the incarnation again. Consider, I want to look at Mary's Magnificat, this song that Mary sings in response to the news that she is with child, and that child will be the one who will reign on David's throne for eternity. And so we're going to look at Mary's song, and in a sense, this whole vision that she gives for the incarnation should explode, should break our, our vision of what Christmas means. There's a sense to which often I think Christmas feels quite twee and sentimental. You kind of imagine the kind of Christmas carol songs of a, of a, a baby and a manger with, uh, you know, cattle lowing. And it, it just feels all very cute. It feels very small and domestic. And I think what you see as you look at Mary's song in this passage that we're going to look at is that, she, that it's, it's much bigger than that. It's, it's really trying to break uh, that small vision and say, look, this, is, this has cosmic implications. This has huge implications for the world that we live in. So um, Luke chapter 1, verse 26. I'll, I'll start with the announcement of Jesus' uh, presence in her, and, and then we'll go on to look at her response. So, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favoured one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed her from her. And then skip down to verse 46. She's been, she greets Elizabeth. Elizabeth is delighted. The baby in Elizabeth's womb is joyful at the presence of the baby in Mary's womb. And then this is what Mary says. This is her response. Listen, by the way, it's so easy to let these words kind of go over you because you've heard them thousands of times. Try and hear them for the first time again. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my saviour. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with, he has filled the hungry 
with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now, I said this is no twee and sentimental vision of the incarnation. It may surprise you to know that these verses are being considered so incendiary, so significant and uh, revolutionary that at various points in history, authorities have prevented, have banned their use. In 1805, the missionary Henry Martin went to India and found that the East India Company, which is essentially kind of the colonial rulers over India at the time, had prevented these verses from being read in church. They formed part of the weekly Anglican Evensong liturgy, but they said, no, these verses are so incendiary, the idea that the, the powerful will be ripped from their thrones, the idea that the rich will go away hungry. They said, no, these, we can't let these verses be read. Later on in the 20th century, uh, in various Latin American countries, Guatemala, uh, Pinochet's Chile, and uh, the Argentina, Argentina, sorry, uh, underneath the Junta, all banned the, the reading of this passage. This 14 or 15-year-old girl, insignificant, lowly woman, as she was, she sings a song that has sung out throughout the generations and at various points intimidated authorities into wanting to silence her. Isn't that fascinating? What I wanted you to see really is that this is, this is no insignificant Christmas carol. What she's describing is the cosmic implications of the incarnation, the significance of Christ's birth and eventual rule. This is what Bonhoeffer, who was a German pastor in the kind of underground church in the 1930s and the run-up to the Nazi regime taking over, and then eventually was martyred by the Nazis. The Nazis killed him. He said, this is how he described this. He said, this is the most passionate, wildest, one might even say revolutionary hymn ever sung. This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary whom we sometimes see in paintings. This song has none of the sweet, nostalgic, or even playful tone of some of our Christmas carols. It is instead a hard, strong, inexorable song about the power of God and the powerlessness of humankind. Mary is looking forward to a time, not just to the birth of this Son, the Son of God, but ultimately to the point when he will come back and establish his reign fully on this earth. She's looking forward to a time of almost great reversal of social justice being established in this world. An end to an economic injustice and human suffering because there are a king who is coming who will reign in justice and righteousness. Think of it for a moment. A world without human trafficking a world without slave labor, a world without poverty, hunger, need, suffering, a world where greed is, is, is a, a distant memory. This is good news for the poor, that the unrighteous oppressors, those who sit in authority now but actually are manipulating and abusing the people who they are over, will be pulled from their thrones. You can see why they wanted to ban it. I think sometimes we forget the socio-political implications of Christ's coming reign. 
We think of it in very individualistic terms because we have very individualistic faith. We think Christ has died, he shed his blood so that I can be forgiven and I can be with God for eternity. Absolutely true. Wonderful source of great joy in our lives, but we've made the reign of Christ too individualistic. We've, we've narrowed it down to what it means for us individually and sometimes almost spiritually. We've forgotten that Christ is coming to establish a new and transformed world when he comes back to judge the living and the dead. But you've got to hear this rightly. This is not some simplistic call to revolution. This is not uh, a kind of call to pick up your pitchforks and overthrow the vain oppressors. In fact, that's what the Jews were expecting. They were expecting a messianic king who would come and, and turn over the tables and establish a reign and get rid of those Roman oppressors. And we know for the rest of the Gospels, that's not what happens It's not some call to arms to take violent revolution. No, this is the announcement of justice coming, saying hope has arrived. It says the world may feel bleak. It did then for them, and it may feel bleak to you. But it says God has not forgotten them, and he's not forgotten us. But of course we have to ask, what does this mean for us? Because you might say, "That's, that's true, I can see that. But what possible implications does that have for our lives now? What I want you to see is really, I think this is a divisive message. I think Mary is presenting a vision of Christ's arrival and coming reign that feels like good news, but it's not good news for all people. It's almost almost like her audience, as you hear her sing this, are divided into two groups. There will be those who hear this news of justice, and are drawn towards the saviour, the coming king, who are delighted to hear that that he is coming to reign. I say it's good news for the lowly, this group of people who are humble and hungry. But there's another group who should be rightly warned by this passage, who hear this announcement of a coming king who will take down the the, uh, unrighteously powerful and should be intimidated. Isn't that why exactly what happens, as you know, go on in the narrative, Herod, the ruler, is intimidated by another king coming, by someone else who would have a, have a, a stake on the throne that he occupies, so to speak, or seen as a threat to his power. And what does he do? He massacres the infants around Bethlehem because he's so threatened by the news of this king. It's almost like Herod, Herod rightly hears the, the implications of one who is coming who will bring justice and righteousness. And so as you hear this, this, this announcement, essentially what I want you to do this evening is ask, which of these two groups am I in? Am I in the group who, the lowly, the hungry, the humble, those who are ready to be obedient servants of Christ, those who are welcoming this messianic king, or am I part of the group who, are he- who should be hearing a warning? Who should be hearing, actually, you, you shouldn't be excited about them. This is not good news for you. This is bad news for you. This is a, a warning. Those who are self-satisfied. Those who say, I am rich and I have no need of Christ. Those who are proud. There is a warning for them. So which of those two groups are you in? That is what I want to unpack for you. What, what does it mean to be lowly? To hear this as good news and which group are you in? So let's unpack these, these three groups then. First of all, you must be humble. To, be, to hear this as good news, you must be humble. You cannot be proud. Those who welcome the Messiah, 
disciples of Christ are those who embrace their lowliness rather than denying it. They have a humility, a a fundamental awareness of the flawedness, the, the sickness within them. I think we can go as far to say that. That is both liberating and makes them look fundamentally different. You see, this passage, I think the the biggest division within this passage is humility versus pride. See it in verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Those who are proud inside, he is scattering them. They are are receiving it. They are like his enemies, receiving a, a, a military judgment. It's almost like a ruler coming to destroy his enemies. Versus... Verse 52, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. What does it mean he's he's exalted those of humble estate? It might sound like he's saying he will exalt all those who are poor and in need, but he can't really be saying that because we know that who will be exalted when Christ comes back? Who will reign with Christ? Who will be welcomed in? It is those who follow Christ, those who put their faith in him. So he's describing here one group of people who are both humble and believers in Christ. Not two groups, one group. So the defining mark of those who welcome the Messiah is humility. Just think for a moment. If people looked at Christians today and they said, you know what, say what you like about those Christians. They might have all sorts of other beliefs, things that I don't agree with. But the thing that I admire, the thing that I see in that tribe is humility, a recognition of their flawedness, a recognition of their brokenness. We might put it in all sorts of different language, saying that is what should mark and define the people of God. But we know the reality is very different to that. When people look at the church, they see religious self-righteousness. They see celebrity pastors. They see all sorts of manifestations of the very opposite of the humility that I would say Mary is saying should define the people of God. Let's just step back and see, where do we see this humility? Well, I think we see it all over the New Testament. We see it all over in Jesus' invitation to his kingdom. We see, I think, humility is the kind of way into the Christian life. In a sense, he's saying, if you don't recognize your flawedness, if you don't recognize some kind of soul sickness inside yourself, some recognition that you need the forgiveness of a savior and you're not the best person to be in control of your life, you cannot enter the kingdom. You cannot be Christ's disciple. There's a moment in the Gospels, in both Mark's Gospel and Luke's Gospel, where Jesus calls Levi, a tax collector, to follow him. And Levi holds a banquet, and, and there's other tax collectors there. And the religious leaders are outraged. They're saying, why are you eating with these scum, these people who have um, d- dishonored and Uh, really just brought shame on us, effectively, those who collaborate with the Roman Empire. And Jesus doesn't challenge their judgment of those people. He challenges their understanding of who he's come for. He says, it is not the healthy that need a doctor, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Saying, unless you recognize your sin, Unless you recognize your flawedness, unless you recognize your need for forgiveness, you cannot come to me. There are not two groups of people, good people and bad people. There are two groups of people, those who recognize their need for a savior and those who don't. Again and again, you see this in the gospels. Matthew 5, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for, they, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
the poor in spirit, those who recognize the poverty of who they are, their need for a living God. Equally, we see the opposite, that pride is the great obstacle to coming into the kingdom of God, an unwillingness to accept your sin, a sense of wanting to either build up a name for yourself or to... um, or really a sense of self-sufficiency. I think that's part of pride often. Or even just a sense of superiority to others. That means you say, I don't, I don't have a problem. Look at those people, they have a problem, but not me. Any of that, that manifestation of pride, it may, prevents you from coming to Christ. In fact, you see this, this is what it means. That pride is at the center of what it means to be an enemy of God. Hit verse 51 again. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud with the thoughts of their heart speaks of judgment, of a conquering king scattering his enemies. Who are Christ's enemies? Those who proudly raise their fists at him and say, I have no need of you. I need no savior. I'm generally a good guy. I I might make a few mistakes, but I have no need. They are the enemies of God. They are the ones who, who do not come to Christ for salvation. And watch out, by the way, you hear the, the subtlety of pride, the sense in which pride is like a, a kind of hidden plant that grows up in your heart that others around you may not even see. You may not even see it yourself. He talks about those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. You know, that silent judgment that you pass on someone else. We say, I thank you that I'm not like them. Echoing the very man who in the temple says to God, I thank you that I'm not like him. And, and Jesus says, at the end of that parable, He's not forgiven. He stands outside my people. He's not with me. How often have you passed judgment on someone silently? Have you thought a sense of superiority to others? That's that sense of pride that no one else can see except, of course, the living God. You see, when we take on the humility that Christ is, is calling us to, that Mary is, in, that Mary is saying, these are the people who welcome the, living, the messianic king, actually, ironically, it's liberating. Ironically, it's a wonderful thing. Because for the first time, you don't need to pretend anymore. You have all sorts of evidence in front of you that actually you're not the man or woman that you want to be. And what I think many people do is they live in a kind of conscious disbelief they kind of see that and they say no but that's just a that was just last week and I was a bit tired or they make all sorts of excuses and justify all sorts of wrongdoing that they see in their heart that is their way of keeping at a distance the otherwise obvious reality that they are a flawed human being but as a Christian because you know that there is hope because you know that one has come from outside yourself outside you and drawn you to himself that he has poured out his mercy on you, you can accept your flaws. You can accept the soul sickness within you. You can accept your poverty because you are rich in Christ. I think that's often why my non-Christian friends, maybe you're here today, you're not a Christian, often why they can't admit to this level of flawedness because there is no hope without Christ. You just have to sit with your brokenness and say, yes, I'm just a bag of poo-poo and I've got no hope to sort myself out. But we are not in that same situation. We don't need to pretend, and actually it's relief. And by the way, this humility, this sense of your own lowliness, actually is why Mary wonders. It's the cause of why we wonder, why we, why we worship with a sense of awe, and say with Mary, why me? 
Why would you visit me? See, in this passage, Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. She's speaking of great worship here. She's rejoicing from her spirit and her soul. She's, it's like deep down into her bones, she is feeling a great sense of rejoicing and worship. Why? Because she's saying, that he, the mighty God, the king of all kings, would come and visit me, me of a lowly estate. She's saying, I can't believe it. That is how Christians should be. There's a sense of, I can't believe that you would come to me, God. Okay, you're not carrying the living God inside your womb at this moment, but we would say he's come to visit this lowly estate. He's Christ in you, the hope of glory, that the Holy Spirit has come to make his home in you. The problem is we get so used to grace. We get so used to the idea that Christ has come to make his home in our, in, our, in our hearts, to take residence in us, that it just feels blasé. It just feels, oh yeah, yeah, grace, yeah, of course. Yeah, the living God's come to make his home in me. Rather than, oh my gosh, the living God has come to make his home in me. Awe and wonder should accompany that sense because we say, why me, God? Me, of a lowly estate, This is how one writer put it. He said, we should be just as shocked that God would give us, with all our smallness and flaws, such a mighty gift. And so no Christian should ever be far from this astonishment that says, I, I of all people, should be loved and embraced by this grace. This perennial note of surprise is a mark of anyone who understands the essence of the gospel. Have you lost your note of surprise? Has grace just feel as you'd expect, so to speak. Because I think we should take hold again of that sense of awe that Christ would choose you, that Christ would reach down into your life and draw you to himself. You did nothing to deserve it, and yet he brought you to himself and opened your eyes. Are we still wowed by the gospel? We need to be. And this humility will change us in all sorts of ways. It will make us a beautiful people because we represent, we, re- we, we display the beauty of Christ as we display his beautiful humility. It means we're not people who can't look down on others. We can't look down either on those who are financially of lower estate from us or of mo- it might be doing things that we say, I would never do that. Why? Because we say, there but for the grace of God go I. You can't look down and say, someone, I can't believe they made those choices that led them to there. That means they're currently on the street because we've made all sorts of bad choices. We wouldn't be where we are today except for the grace of God. So you you don't have the ability to look down on anyone. It means we can live with a radical honesty in the church, in the community. It means we can expect and be open about showing and revealing our flaws and our struggles and our sins to others because the very entry requirement of this community, the beginning, the way you can kind of come in the door, so to speak, is you say, yeah, I'm flawed. So when you come to me and you say, look, actually, I've got this struggle and this sin, and I'm I'm not surprised. Newsflash, insert name here, is a sinner. We're not surprised by our sin, and so we're actually able to be honest with each other about what we're struggling with. We don't need to put on a mask and try and pretend to the world that we're something that we're not. But ultimately, the reason why this matters so much is because it's displaying the character of Christ. Christ has put his spirit in you. This radical humility should be true of the tribe, the people of God, because it's true of our leader, Christ. It's no coincidence that this is a moment, the incarnation, 
where we see the humility of the living God, the humility of Christ, that the immortal one was willing to become mortal, the created what the creator was willing to take on the flesh of man, create the one, the one that is created. That this is a moment, this incarnation is a moment where we see the mighty one has become weak. The king becomes a servant. The rock of ages becomes a dependent creature who needs his nappy, who needs his bottom wiped. That is the great beauty of the incarnation. This is the humility of Christ that we see in incredible, incredible gl- glory in this, pass- in, in this moment. I think the book of Philippians puts it so well when he describes Christ's humility. He says, have this mind, talking about humility, let each of you not look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Talking about living not with selfish ambition, but humility, counting others more significant than yourselves. Why? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, Although, for who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ became lowly. And so he welcomes the lowly people. He embraced weakness so that he might reconcile a weak and lowly people to himself. To those who the progressive voices in our culture who'd say all authority is, is by inherently oppressive, all kings, anytime you put another authority over you, they're going to destroy you. We say, no, look at this one who laid aside his majesty and his authority to die for you. This is an authority who can be trusted. And we see the pattern that he takes on humility, but how does it end? He's exalted. And so too, those who take on the humility of Christ, those who lay down their lives, who take on the cross, who take on the posture, the humble posture of Christ, will be exalted with him one day. When a day when every knee, where, where, every, where he has a name that is above every name and that every knee bows, we will be exalted with him as we take on his humility when he comes back to judge the living and the dead. So the first defining mark of what it means to be lowly is humility. The second one, we must be hungry for God and not hungry for wealth and comfort. The defining mark of those who welcome the Messiah are those who hunger for him and do not give in to the lie of materialism and comfort. You see this in verse 53, there's another division. It says, he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. And really, I think it's describing two groups of people, those who are hungry for the living God, those who are hungry for him, and those who are self-satisfied, who are materially wealthy, and who actually are satisfied by the, by, by the God of wealth, so to speak, and have no need for the living God. So the first question this asks, how will you know you're lowly? Well, it's do you have a hunger for God? Do you have a hunger for him? This is the hungry there, I think that it's describing here is not Primarily, are you so materially poor that you are hungry day to day on a day to day basis? It's saying, are you hungry for the living God? This is reminiscent of the Psalm, Psalm 107, when he describes, some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. 
This is why Jesus describes himself in the Gospels as the bread of life. Another way to put it, it might be more literally at the time, I think because bread is so significant in the Middle Eastern diet at that point, really is kind of saying, I am the food of life. I'm the essential thing you need every day. I am what will sustain you. You need a, a daily communion with me. You need, you need to be hungry for me. You need to desire me. That is ultimately got to be one of the defining marks of a follower of Christ, one who is hungry for him, one who desires him, one who says, I need your influence in my life on a daily basis. I need your, your word. I need your spirit. I need you. I'm so hungry for you because you satisfy me. You, your, the news of your love and your affection for me is the great source, a great source of joy and contentment in my life. But I need you because you restore my vision of the world. You still my anxious heart. You help me to see my responsibilities rightly. You sustain me with the knowledge of your love and presence. The great cry of the hungry is we need you. The great cry of the Christian is a sense, a conscious sense of dependence on God, a sense of a need for his spirit, a sense of a need for a daily communion with him. So that's what it means to be hungry, but let's explore this idea of wealth for a moment. I think he's saying they are hungry for God and the opposite is a people who are like self-satisfied by material possessions that they're no longer hungry for God. There's a sense of those who have become rich in life but have ignored the very thing that they need most. You've got to hear there's, there's an implicit judgment, actually, on the rich here. It's not a, a crude sense of those who are wealthy will face judgment, but it's talking specifically about those, I think, who have a love of money, who have a worship of money, who have replaced God with money. And you can see this in a couple of ways as... As Luke's gospel goes on, actually, you can see it. He tells a story of this great reversal where the rich will go away hungry and the hungry will be satisfied. And he tells a story of a, man, a rich man, we don't know his name, and Lazarus. And I think the implication is that the rich man is in hell because he has neglected to care for the poor man right in front of him. He's under judgment because he has not cared for the poor says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. There's a sense of great opulence in this man. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So he's saying, look, he's such poverty. He's at, he's at the rich man's gate out, outside his house in desperate just for food that would fall from his plate. But the rich man passes him by day after day. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, in hell, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of, the finger, end of his finger in water and cool my, cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Even from hell, he's saying, get that poor guy to serve me and resolve my needs. And then Abraham says, no, there's a chasm between us that you cannot be, cannot be crossed. And it's a sobering moment of judgment that says there is a great reversal. The man, the rich man who cared nothing for those in need around him in this life faces judgment. And the poor man is with the Lord. 
Again, we see this in James 5, where James speaks of judgment on those who love money so much that they have oppressed the workers who work for them. They've essentially robbed them of what is theirs, what is owed to them. And again, they're sobering words. It says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. He's speaking of a coming judgment. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Their love of money has led them to neglect the people around them, in the case of the rich man, or to openly defraud them, to actively oppress them and rob them of what they're owed. So how will we know whether in in the lowly, hungry category or those who are consumed by wealth? It's not about how much money you have. It's about whether you love God or love money. There's a division here. Because, you know, Matthew 6, Jesus is very clear. If God is your master, then money cannot be. And one way you can tell it that God isn't your master is this actually you have a love, a worship of money. So how do we know whether we love money? How do we know whether we worship money? Well, one way we tell that we don't worship money, because we all enjoy money, we all enjoy the gifts that God's given us, but how can we tell we actually worship money, where we replace God with money? Well, one is that we're content already. Contentment in Christ, regardless of our circumstances, is one, of the, is one of the kind of defining hallmarks of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Paul says in 1 Timothy, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. If we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. It doesn't sound like the world that we live in. Many would say, I'm not, it's not just food and clothing I need, it's an entertainment system and I'm, you know, all sorts of other things and palatial residence and all sorts. It's, it's not just the essentials of life, it's all everything else that we say, no, I need more of this stuff. That is the great lie of materialism. That is the great lie that will be thrown at you day after day, different advertisers trying to make you feel discontent and dissatisfied with the things that you've got precisely they can, so they can sell you more of what they're offering. And the Christian says, no, I'm wise to this great lie. Just in Proverbs, uh, there's, a, there's a kind of picture of an adulterous woman who, who kind of looks beautiful, but actually she's going to destroy you. In the same way, the Christian has, has wised up to the lie of materialism that says, you just need more stuff. And they say, no, actually, I don't need more stuff. It's not, it's not stuff that I need that will make, give me existential satisfaction. We're discontent. We have discontent. And what, in the words of one author... We have baptized the lie of consumerism and expect God to provide us with all that we want. We've bought into the materialism of our world. We've bought into the ceaseless desire for more and more stuff, forgetting all the while that money, that you'll never have enough if you worship money. The author of Ecclesiastes says, whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. One way you can tell whether you worship money is if you're always worrying about having more, always planning the next thing, trying to get more and more because you'll never have enough because that money is not just something you enjoy, but it's the thing that's become your basis for security. I know someone who genuinely said to me recently they were worried about their money, they were worried about their life, things were going badly, and they said, I'm just going to go and count my money online. I'm just going to go work out how much money I have because that will make me feel more secure. 
That's when you know you've got an idolatry problem. That's when you know that thing has become your security, when you look to it to provide you existential comfort. Christians have become wise to that because in the words of Jesus, man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. We know that more stuff, more money is not the answer to our existential dissatisfaction. And Christians show that God is their master, not money, by by displaying a radical generosity. How will we know that you don't worship money? Because you don't view money as a thing to be hoarded, a thing to be stockpiled, to make yourself feel better, or to give you some sense of existential security, or just as a marker of your value in life. No, actually, money becomes a thing to be stewarded for the glory of God. Resources to be used to care for the poor, to be about God's purposes and extending his kingdom in all sorts of ways. Wealth is not something to be hoarded, but something to be stewarded for his purposes, including providing for your needs and providing for your family. The people of God are defined by not a self-satisfaction from material possessions, but a hunger for the living God. Finally then, I want to suggest one more more thing that defines the people of God who are lowly, and that is that they are willing to become obedient servants, not pursuing power. The great danger in this message, if you heard this message in those days, would be, let's take power. Let's take to the barricades and overwhelm the Romans. And you know, you even, you can even, when he talks about bringing down the mighty, you think, right, let's take down the mighty. But that misses the point completely. Because the people of God are to be like the crucified Christ. He says, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He has helped his servant Israel. This is not the call to take power. Actually, it's quite the opposite. The call to take a posture of a servant. And we have it in Mary. Mary is the very vision of what she is calling us to. You remember in verse 38 when when, um, the, the angel tells her this? What's her response? Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. The way we will show that we are lowly is that we are willing to take the place of a lowly servant. The willing to say, I am a servant of Christ. I am one who obeys him. Because it's not just that we await Christ's visible reign to come, we recognize his reign now. The disciples are clear about this. After Christ is resurrected, all the way through the book of Acts, they are again and again saying, Christ has been raised and he reigns now. He's exalted. He is in charge. And so we display the reality of Christ's reign, Christ's rule, Christ's majesty by living in obedience to him now. So they say with Mary, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to what you want, even if there are difficult circumstances that come from that. Think about Mary. She's about to basically have a child out of wedlock. She's about to experience the rebuke of her community. People are going to say, wait a second, you, were, you were, had a baby then and you got married then. She is, I think, by saying yes to the angel, accepting some level of social ridicule. And as a Christian, you may, if you become a Christian in this society, you may accept some level of social ridicule. People may think you're weird. They may think you're a bigot, all sorts of things. But that's implicitly part of the acceptance of becoming a servant of Christ, of taking the honor, actually, of bearing the name of Christ and serving him. The great danger of the Christian movement throughout the ages is rather than becoming servants, we seek power. We seek power. We seek to change the world by taking hold of the institutions of power. And that's no bad thing. We want to change the world. If we seek to have influence, I don't think that's a, a bad thing. 
But I think we can have bad motives for it sometimes. Sometimes we want to take power because it's rather inconvenient to be a servant, to be a people who look like the, the crucified Lord, the, the people who are, who are scorned and rejected and a minority influence. We'd rather be in control. One person said, the love of liberty is the love of others, but the love of power is the love of ourselves. Sometimes we want to be in power. Sometimes we want to be an influence. Sometimes churches and movements of churches will, will change what they believe and change what they declare because they ra- it's rather inconvenient and it stops them from holding power. They make all sorts of compromises in order to have power. And this says, no, the very opposite. is not, We're not called to try and take power. We're called to become like the crucified Lord, become like a servant, laying down our lives, sacrificing ourselves, sacrificing our privileges to be about God's business, willing to take on the scorn and rebuke that comes with the name of Christ in some cultures, including ours. Choosing to be foolish and associated with Christ. Think about in 1 Corinthians how Paul says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Sorry, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Becoming a follower of Christ may be a choice to become low and despised, to be foolish. And we accept that because of the great joy and privilege of being associated with this king. That we accept that level of humbling, of becoming lowly, because we await one day the great exaltation with Christ. As Christ is exalted, so we will be exalted with him. We wait patiently for that day. And so really I want you to see as we bring this all together, the calling to be a lowly people. A people who are marked by humility, who are humble like Christ. A people who are marked by a poverty of spirit, poor like Christ. A people who are hungry for the living God and a people who are obedient like Christ. It's a call to resemble the person of Christ. To be a people who are waiting, to join with Mary in anticipating, in looking forward to, in longing for the day that Christ will come back and bring about a tremendous transformation of this world. When every injustice, every moment of suffering is put right. But really this is ultimately a call to rejoice. To rejoice with Mary just as she sang at the beginning of this song. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. As we recognise our lowliness, as we recognise our great need, as we recognise the poverty of our hearts and the disorder within, we rejoice with Mary that the living God has come and visited us, has come to this earth, has taken on weakness, has taken on a certain level of dependence in that moment in the incarnation to reconcile us to himself, to draw us to himself such that we can be his people. And that is the ultimate source of rejoicing. The people who humble themselves and hunger for him and rejoice because he's looked upon them and visited us with his presence. That is why we rejoice at Christmas. That is the great source of why Christmas is a celebration festival for those who follow Christ.